So this is a question that came up some weeks ago on a Sunday show. And it's a very interesting, not essential, or at least certainly not immediate, but an important question. The question is, what would constitute identity in a stateless society? And by stateless society, I'm going to assume that we include an atheist society, since the two are going to have to kind of go hand in hand. What would it mean to have an identity in a philosophical, free, non-coercive society? It's a fascinating question. Of course, we have identities now based on geography. As somebody posted uh, on one of my videos, I'm from Canada. Who the hell is Free Domain Radio? <laughs> and I replied back, Free Domain Radio is a philosophy show that would inform you that Canada does not exist. And so there wouldn't be national identity. There wouldn't be sports addiction identity. Of course, we all understand that these are actually quite the opposite of identity. But nonetheless, these things wouldn't exist. Would there be racial identity? I think it's possible that to some degree there may be some sort of racial identity that would maintain itself, but I think that that would diminish over time. And so all of these false identities, uh, you know, my town, my county, my state, my country, all these layers of illusion and exploitation would simply not be there. Now, there would be some adaptive culture that would have to do with climate, I think, right? So, I mean, the world outlook of people who live on a beach is quite different than those who live on an iceberg or something like in the, in the North Pole or whatever, or close up to the North Pole. So, there would be probably some regional differences around that, but I'm not sure that those would be particularly important. Would there be gender identities? I think that there would be fewer, far fewer gender identities. So this woman who was on the show, Cordelia Fine, has left a, left a big impact, a big imprint on my mind about the degree to which gender is a social construct rather than an inevitable or internally generated biological state. Now, of course, men and women have different experiences. Um, menstruation, uh, apparently orgasms are very much the same. I read a study once because we're all drawn to orgasm studies, and naturally. Um, but I read a study once where people described their experience of an orgasm, and when people read it without any reference to biology or gender, they couldn't tell whether it was a man or woman describing their experiences of orgasm. And so I... Uh, but childbirth, menstruation, breastfeeding, and so on. I mean, these things are, are different for men and for women, and that's going to have some effects on, on personality, perhaps. So I think there may still be some of that. I don't think that there would necessarily be the same kind of materialism identity, right? So, like, preppy or grungy or emo or rocker or, you know, you see these guys, they just need... <laughs> beefy embodiments of Grateful Dead cliches, these guys who drive in the Harleys and they got the big beard and they got the gut and they got the <laughs> saggy faded jeans and the black t-shirt with bad graffiti and then the little leather jackets and uh, the ponytails and a woman who weighs as much if not more on the back seat of these beasts. So, I mean, this I think would 
sort of diminish. But I don't think that that would be the end of, of identity. I mean, certainly not everybody would be the same. I mean, there would still be different levels of IQ. There would still be different artistic tastes, cultural tastes uh, in terms of food and, and music and art and, and cinema and theater and so on. It would be different tastes. And so I think, and this has sort of been the dream of many secular artistic people. Uh, this, uh, in particular, I'm thinking of those sort of irony slash literature addictions or exhortations of people like Christopher Hitchens. I think that there would be the achievement to some degree of the dream of identity through art. Through art. I don't go as far as Ayn Rand in saying that there is sort of good and bad art other than in terms of, of quality. You know, she says Beethoven is morbid. I, I, don't, I don't really believe any of that kind of stuff. And I think that a truly well-rounded personality can appreciate the darker music, the poppier music, the darker plays, the popular, the happier plays. You should be able, I think, if you are an open-minded and ironic and curious individual, you should be able, I think, to appreciate The Taming of the Shrew along with A Long Day's Journey Into Night. You should, I think, be able to absorb and appreciate the artistry, however horrifying it is, in something like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. As well, I think you should be able to enjoy the producers or Showboat. <laughs> so that's sort of my my feeling. I think that you should be able to enjoy Pink Floyd and Rush. Or you should be able to enjoy um, Tony Bennett and Sinet O'Connor. These are just... I, I, th I don't think that there should be necessarily restrictions. Now, I think that there is certain kinds of head-poundingly ugly music that I think would diminish, because to me it just seems like such a shouting, reverberating echo of horror that it has to do with childhood trauma. And so without that, I think there would be far less demand for that kind of music. But I think we should be able to accept and absorb and appreciate mournful art. I think that's reasonable because it's not like there's going to be no unhappiness in a stateless society. In, in some ways, freedom and peace is going to increase people's unhappiness. I think that's inevitable. I mean, if you are, I mean, assuming that the problem of death has not been solved in a free and peaceful society, you will be very close to others and you will be very intimate and you will be very in love with your spouse and, and your children and your friends. There will be those bonds of devotion and human connection that the Grim Reaper hacks and pulls apart relentlessly as he drags people clutching and gasping through the doorway of death. So there is going to be more weeping at funerals in a free society and less sentimental weeping in a free society. I think that's inevitable. So there is going to be much greater happiness. And as the natural shadow of the Statue of Happiness, it is going to be greater unhappiness, greater sadness, greater misery. If you never love... You never lose much. And the more you love, the more you're going to lose. That's the deal. That's the deal. 
I think it's still the best deal around, <laughs> but that is the deal. So will there be sad, mournful, angry music? Absolutely. Of course there will be. Of course there will be. And so I think that is going to be the case. Will there be plays about family dysfunction in a free society? Well, sure there will be. I mean, we have plays about life. So we have plays and movies about medieval or quasi-medieval lives like... Well, God, just Dungeons and Dragons movies, Lord of the Rings, uh, Krull, The Conqueror, Conan has just come out again. So there is going to be, of course, there's going to be historical views of dysfunction, and we're going to view that as, I mean, obviously pretty horrifying. But uh, yeah, I think that's all going to be there. But I do believe that people are going to gain. I shouldn't say they're going to gain their identity through literature and art, but I think that their current life experience is going to be voluminously reflected back to them through their choices and a wide variety of choices there will be through their choices of art and uh, and literature so if you're going through a period of grieving you're going to be drawn to particular stories and music and so on that that is going to reflect and i think uh, help you through that particular period and that I think it's going to be, it's not going to make your identity, right? Like this is kind of annoying identity that goes along with art at the moment, right? So if you're into um, death metal music, then you can't be wearing a suit and tie, you know? <laughs> sort of thing. I once knew a guy in business who was a, an executive who was really into Eminem. Can't happen, I guess. Um, but if you're really into Motorhead, then you've got to have the. Spinal tap handlebar mustache to go with it, and the long hair and the pseudo aristocratic grunge garb, and so on. I mean, it's so unfortunately, there's a, there's so much cliche that goes along with that. I mean, if you're into Led Zeppelin, then you've got to have pimples, a skinny torso, and shaggy hair. Uh, that's just a uh, <laughs> seems to be kind of inevitable. I know that's all too dated for words, but I'm sorry, I'm old. <laughs> I'm old, help me. And so I think there is going to be less of, to use a double metaphor, an Iron Maidenish constriction on your identity if you're into particular kinds of music. You know, like if you're into Spandau Ballet, then you don't have to be preppy or whatever. And that I think is going to be a, a fun, more fun for people, or more more rich. I shouldn't say more rich for people because you can have a wider diversity of stuff. You can be into jazz without being pretentious. You can be into heavy metal without being depressed and angry. You can be into Sade without being over-polished and creamy. <laughs> so I think these you're going to have a more fluid identity that is going to be based upon how your culture, your society, your, your art, your friendships, how they relate to your experience of the world and your input into the world as your life moves through its various stages. And I think that's great. I think that has a kind of flexibility and richness. And by richness, I simply mean a non-judgmental experience of a wide variety of emotionality and intent within music. There are going to be times in a free society when you're really angry. And you would have every reason to be angry, right? Somebody hits you in a car who's been drinking. I mean, these things are going to happen. Less, I hope, but it happen in a free society. Uh, your wife dies suddenly. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's just awful. 
And it's going to make you angry. It's going to make you sad. Assuming that you didn't plan it (laughs) or want it. And so these things, I think, are going to be part of what it is that people call an identity. But it's not going to sort of circle around you and close off. In other words, if you see a guy wearing a 10-gallon hat in a pickup with a Confederate flag hanging off the back of his pickup truck, it doesn't hugely shock you when Garth Brooks comes out of his stereo when he starts up the car. It may be surprising if it's Philip Glass or something like that as a modern classical composer. And so what I'd like is for the cues to be more surprising than they are now because it seems kind of inevitable. You, know, you see someone who looks a certain way and you can almost tell the kind of music and movies and art that they're, they're into. It's almost completely predictable. You know, when I was a kid, you know, Susie and the Banshees meant emo, meant uh, Echo and the Bunnymen and, and all these kinds of uh, Morrissey and the Smiths and all that kind of stuff. It was uh, a cliché. Bow down before the one you serve. You're going to get what you deserve. I think that was Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor, singer? Anyway, there is uh, there was this kind of cliche, and then there was the sort of boppers who were into, um, you know, Duran Duran and Depeche Mode and, and on Spandau Ballet and all this kind of stuff. And there was this kind of, kind of cl- cliche about stuff. And there was a few bands that transcended this, but not many. And so I would like, and I believe this will be the case in the future, Someone may have a pickup truck, but the odds of them being in the country would be no greater than if they had a Maserati. I think that would be interesting, and I think that would be more human, less less cliched, because a lot of that stuff seems to be kind of culturally enforced. That old line from the Blue Bruce Brothers, we, we like two kinds of music here, country or western. <laughs> so I would like it if if stuff was surprising to people. Uh, and you couldn't necessarily tell the art consumption of somebody based upon external cues. And I've always found that to be quite interesting and often delightful to see in people uh, when I meet them as adults. If I can't sort of tell what kind of music they're into or or if they're just op- into being open to different kinds of music. I mean, I went through a phase in my early 20s where uh, I I was on the radio and I had sort of access to... <laughs> what what was then Napster, which which was massive amounts of vinyl, uh, like just a record store and a half's worth of vinyl music, and I could sort of check out and and play and borrow whatever it is that I wanted, and I just I got uh, everything, Spyro, Gyra, in terms of jazz. To I got really got into Louis Armstrong for a while, and I just it's where I, it was a little a little earlier was my introduction to the real blues through Muddy Waters, but I got really into the blues through there and uh, got more into into jazz. And and also, I had that, you know, great resource, and I just sort of would grab albums randomly and, and listen to them, really listen to them, sit and, and listen with headphones to them and follow along the lyrics sheet if I could. And there's some albums, actually, I kind of liked. I just... I can't remember. <laughs> I just remember the covers. I can't remember. There's one... If you ever know this, please let me know. It was a guy with this incredibly long, straight hair spread out all over his guitar who sang stuff. And one of his songs was a really, really long title for a song about something about it's getting too heavy, baby, and I've got to leave, or something like that. If anybody ever knows what that album was, I'd really like to listen to it again. 
But there was that kind of stuff where I would just go hog wild on wildly different stuff. And I remember one summer I went to see um, Otis Clay uh, like one week and then the Beach Boys the next week and then I was at a jazz club and I just really got into just a wide variety of different music. And I think that was actually very good for my brain. Oh, and I also was was very keen on medieval music with the original instruments, like so the originally crafted sort of instruments. I found that to be uh, just fascinating. And I got into Gregorian chants for a while. I found that to be very relaxing to meditate to or to, uh, to, to work out to or to do yoga to. I found that to be quite fascinating. And some of that stuff is, is very skillful. And of course, I was introduced to a wide variety of music while singing at theater school. Uh, just a wide, wide variety of music. And I had a girlfriend at the time who then got me into um, musicals. I'd never really had any exposure to musicals before. She was a musical fiend and just opened my mind to just an enormous variety of musicals, which I really, really enjoyed. And I also got into 50s. Anyway, I won't bore you with all of this sort of stuff. But I, and uh, Sam Cooke, oh, Sam Cooke, my God, my God, above what a singer, what a singer, what a singer, what a singer, and what a songwriter, too. Oh, oh, too bad. He got shot by a hooker. Anyway, so I got into just a wide variety of stuff and got into prog rock through Yes, uh, like the Alan Parsons Project as well. And uh, ELO, my brother was more into ELO, but I sort of liked some of their stuff. And uh, anyway, I just got into a wide variety of music. And I, I'm trying to think of anything I really didn't sample. I guess I didn't sample country that much, but I had a lot of exposure to country while I worked up north <laughs> as a prospector. The only station we could get when we worked in the bush for about four months was a country and western station, which I distinctly remember is the top 850 country and western songs of all time. <laughs> I do remember being struck by some of the cleverness of the lyrics, though. Get your tongue out of my mouth. I'm kissing you goodbye. Anyway, uh, so I, it's sort of my hope that in the future, uh, people's, quote, identities will be more a conversation between their circumstances and their artistic environment. That's going to be fluid. That's going to be... I was going to say changeable, but <laughs> what are the synonyms for fluid that I can waste your time with? But fluid and responsive to their circumstances. And I think that is going to be, it's going to be hard to pin people down that way. Uh, oh, you're into sad, you're into sad music. That doesn't mean that you're a sad person. That just means you're feeling sad at the moment. And you're into angry music. That doesn't mean you're an angry person. It doesn't become a sort of fixed identity, but it becomes something that is a reflection of your experience in the moment or at the moment. So I hope that helps about, I think art is going to become even more important and more responsive in the future because it's not going to be a guaranteed audience of, you know, fixed angry and bitter emos that you can make, write your music for. So it's my hope that that's how the future of freedom is going to look from an artistic standpoint. And so I hope that this helps. And of course, if you have any questions, comments, or criticisms, always drop by freedomainradio.com. And if you have some money to donate, freedomainradio.com forward slash donate is your generation, your generosity station. Thank you so much.